very often we, we are clear, or maybe it seems a little more clear, how we come into the Christian life. We think we sort of have a grasp of repentance and faith upon hearing the gospel, but very often when it comes to the Christian life after that, how we, how we go about the Christian life after that, there is confusion, which then causes us to go back and begin to doubt what we thought we knew about the introduction of the Christian life. We, 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 we come in and we say, I'm in, I believe, and then we go about this, this what is in, in Scripture, like warfare, and we fall. We get back up and we fall and we get back up and we fall and we, 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 maybe we make it halfway up and we stagger down again and all of a sudden we begin to question or to doubt what we thought we knew about getting in. All of a sudden we doubt our salvation completely. Have I ever been a Christian? Because we've not rightly understood what the Christian life is supposed to be and what it really looks like. So the topic that we're going to be talking about today for me in my studies, has been uh, one of my favorite, one, one of the most intriguing subjects to me. To read, uh, to try to find various men and to listen to them as they struggle and try to articulate what the Scriptures put forward, especially when what's being put forward is quite mysterious, quite hard to wrap our minds around. It's fascinating. But I think for me it's been such a blessing because I understand that, that, that struggle. That if we, if we don't grasp how the Christian life is supposed to work on a regular day-to-day -day, uh, movement, well, it causes us to doubt the whole thing. We have to get our minds wrapped around what it's supposed to look like and how it works. And, and, I, and so I hope that this will... I hope this, this will be beneficial, even though I'll say from the outset, and I'll say later on, there are mysteries here that I can't explain. And, and so I'll try to go slowly, and, and if there are questions or, or conversation that, that needs to be had uh, afterwards, th this is one of my favorite things to talk about in the world. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'll read the verses again, verses 30 and 31. Paul says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So this is God's word. Now we're going to ask him to help us understand it. Father, we're asking again that you'd help us to understand your word. We're asking again for help. We are confessing again our need for help, our weakness. We are confessing, Lord, as a congregation that there are words and phrases that we might be able to understand linguistically and yet spiritually the reality of them far surpasses Anything that we could ever articulate or, or even draw a parallel from or to in this life and in this world. These are matters that are of pure, heavenly revelation. And we are earthly creatures. And so we need your help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to come 
and to give your word success in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So far from this, these two verses, we've noted four things. God has given us Christ, who is our wisdom. God has united us to Christ. Through union with Christ, we have salvation. Salvation is essentially boiled down to its most basic essence, union with the Son of God, union with Christ. And then this salvation, or wisdom as he's describing it here, this unfolding of God's plan for us, is set forth in these three words, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now, last Lord's Day, we considered what it means that Christ is our righteousness. Not not terribly difficult to, to grasp in the way that it's presented in Scripture. Astounding, absolutely. But now we're going to move to that next word, sanctification. Sanctification. That word means to make holy or to set apart, to set something apart from that which is common for a special use by God. This very, the same word can and often is simply translated holiness. And it refers most often in the New Testament to the believer's separation from the world, from sin, from his state by nature to God and unto godliness. So then what Paul is saying here to the saints in Corinth and to us is that you are united to Christ, you've been joined to Him, who by that union has become sanctification from God to you. That's what he's saying. The words, again, not really hard to understand the wording. The doctrine, the idea, the theology behind it is is what is fascinating. You are united to Christ Jesus, and by that union, Christ Jesus has become sanctification from God to you, or holiness from God to you. Or if we wanted to use the same phrasing that we've used several times now, God has given us a person who is our sanctification, or who is our holiness. In bringing to pass His long-expected purposes for us in our salvation, God has given us His Son. He's given us a person. And when we begin to zoom in on the details of exactly what that actually means in our salvation, we see now, just after righteousness, which we saw is associated with justification and that doctrine, just after righteousness, we have sanctification. And some have even... Uh, worded it that way. Christ is our justification and then our holiness or our sanctification. Trying to, trying to keep in mind the, the chronology of, of the, the order of salvation. Justification, sanctification, redemption. There's clearly a, 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 a trajectory like that set forth in the words here. God gave us His Son who is our sanctification. As we said last week, we can insert this word in now. What we need but lack... God has 
and he has provided in his son, in a person. Now listen to Octavius Winslow. He says, There is no great advance in holiness without a growing knowledge of Christ as the sanctification of the believer. Now hopefully, if I were to ask you, do you desire to grow in holiness? You would say, yes. If you don't desire to grow in holiness, you will not be in heaven. Heaven is a place for holy people. Now God will finalize the holiness before we enter into heaven, but He says even now there is a holiness which if we are not even striving after, we're not going to see heaven. So we, we want holiness. We desire holiness. So He's saying there is no advance in holiness. You cannot grow in holiness until you understand this point. Christ as the sanctification of the believer. You must understand this point. Again, splicing the, the words of the verse so that we can focus in on what, we're, what, what is our topic. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us sanctification. Now I want to open that up further by answering two questions. Number one, what is sanctification? And then number two, how is Christ our sanctification? Two questions. So first, what is sanctification? When we speak of sanctification, we're not merely defining a word. I could say, well, sanctification means to make holy. Well, that, that is what it means, but we're, we, that, that's, bad. that's not how we do theology. That, that's a bad way to do theology. We don't just say, well, the word means this, therefore it's this. Sanctification is a, it brings with it an, an entire um, broad doctrine. It's a, it's a, a chapter in, in a systematic theology by itself, we could say. It's very important. The definition of sanctification is best understood by starting with the concept as it's found in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, a person, place, or thing was considered sanctified whenever it was set apart from common use by God to be used or for special use in God's service. For example, Genesis 2-3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. That's the word sanctified in the, in the Greek translation. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it that day. Sanctified a day. Because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. So God took that seventh day and He said, This day is set apart. It's different. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling this one out. I'm going to leave it in the calendar, but I'm going to pull it out. And go ahead and, and set, it, set it apart for special use, for particularly for his own use, for his own service. And he did that for himself and for man. The seventh day was marked out from all other days for the service of God. Now we believe that since the resurrection of Christ, that Sabbath, that same doctrine, has now been shifted to the first day of the week in light of Christ's resurrection. So we would say the first day of the week has been set apart, made holy by God for the service of God. It's not like the rest. It's on your calendar. If you get a calendar out and you look at it, you're going to see the, the seven days. It's going to be there. 
some calendars you'll notice have Sunday at the end of the at the end of the calendar. I don't like that. That's incorrect. Sunday's the first day of the week. When you meet people on Saturday evening and they say, uh, "Have a good weekend," you say, "I did," and I'm going to start my my week start tomorrow because that, the Lord's Day is the first day of the week. But it's set apart. It's not like the other days. It's still in the calendar, but you could take a a, a Magnum 44 marker if you'd like and just go ahead and black out. That first column, it's already designated by God. He already took that column and said, my, my column. It's sanctified. That's the picture. Another text, Exodus 13, 2. Consecrate to me, that's the same word, sanctify, to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first who open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. God says, First thing that comes out of the womb, sanctify it. Set it apart. What does that mean? It's mine. Not yours, mine. It's taken away from the common. What about the second child? Common. Third child? Common. Fourth child? Common. First child? Holy. Set apart. Sanctify. That's the picture. The firstborn of both man and beast was marked out by God. Set apart from the rest. In other words, he was sanctified. That's what the, the picture is. And we know that many other things were consecrated or sanctified under the Old Covenant, especially with regard to the worship of the Old Covenant. The tabernacle was sanctified. The temple was sanctified. The priests were sanctified. The utensils that they used were sanctified. Mount Zion itself and Jerusalem are are sanctified places set apart for the worship of God. Why? Because God is holy Himself. And as he says in Leviticus 10.3, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. In other words, in our estimation, in our thinking, in the way that we, we, we are disposed toward God, the way that we speak of God, the way we think of God, the way we hear others talk about God, He is to be treated unlike any other person, place, or thing that there is. He's to be sanctified. He's to be called holy, set apart. And therefore, all that is used in His service is also to be sanctified. It's not for your use anymore. Whenever the Babylonian king brought out the vessels that, were, that were, they, they robbed from Jerusalem and said, we're going to use these things in our party, that was a bad idea. Well, they're just, they're just cups and plates and things. No, they're not. They might look that way, but they were sanctified at a point in time. They're not yours. They've been set apart, sanctified. That's the picture. Sanctified, consecrated, set apart as holy. These are all synonymous ideas. So when we come to the New Testament, that same concept or that same imagery is applied. But now it's not a physical temple. It's not physical utensils used in worship. Now it's applied to people. The people become that which is sanctified. And it's applied in two ways. Two ways. Christians are called... Saints. Saints. Every Christian is a saint. 1 Corinthians 1 2, called to be saints. That means sanctified ones or holy ones. Every Christian is a saint, a holy one, a, a, a person set apart by God for God from the common mass of the human race. But we are also being made holy. Or, or we are being sanctified. We are sanctified, and yet we are being sanctified. We are those who are sanctified, Acts 26, 18. 
and also those who need to be sanctified completely, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. The, the work is begun, and in one sense, it's done. Sanctified, finished, complete, done. But then in another sense, that work spills over and has to continue. And it won't be finished until we're glorified in the presence of Christ. Two ways. Sanctified in an instant, and then sanctified in process. Listen to our confession, and if you want to read along, it's on page 677 in the hymnal. Our confession outlines sanctification, and, and as I read this, and as you read along, listen to how it describes a Christian. Chapter 31. I type chapter 31, I'm almost certain that's not correct. Because that's the end, so it's, it's not chapter 31. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, that's regeneration explained, are also farther sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, did you notice the two parts of this description of sanctification in that paragraph? Two parts to the Christian experience of salvation. First, they are United to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart, a new spirit put within them. That's, that, all of that is completed in an instant, in a moment. We, we draw distinct, distinctions in, in the particular acts, but the, the application of it is imperceptible to us. We, we don't say, I'm, I'm being effectually called, I'm being called, ha, and regenerated, there it was. No, it all comes together in an instant. In a moment, we are united to Christ and made new creatures, created in Christ Jesus. In a moment. In a moment, we are brought from death to life. In a moment, we are circumcised of heart and we are made a peculiar people. In a moment, we are cleaned by the washing of regeneration from the native pollution of our nature. In a moment, our hearts and minds are subdued and brought into submission to Christ. In a moment, the Spirit comes in to dwell in us as holy temples of the Lord. The Spirit wouldn't come if we weren't holy. The Spirit can't dwell in an unholy temple. So there has to be some sense in which we are made holy. And the Spirit can take up residence in us. In a moment, we are justified, and all of a sudden, we enjoy a new standing before God that we never had before, and that no other creature in heaven and on earth has but us. In all these ways, we are immediately or definitively sanctified. We are made holy ones. We are saints in Christ Jesus, Romans 1 7. And we are a part of that group that Hebrews 3 1 refers to as holy brothers would apply to sisters as well. Holy, therefore, holy brothers, brothers and sisters, all of us, we're, we're holy people. Being united to Christ, 
were joined to the Holy One of God. That's what the demons called Him. The Holy One. And so we ourselves become a holy people, a holy nation, a separate people from everything else and everybody else in the world, every other creature. We are made distinct, set apart. No other creature shares union with Christ. No other creature shares the benefits of that union. Therefore, we become a holy people. John Murray says, quote, We are thus compelled to take account of the fact that the language of sanctification is used with reference to some decisive action that occurs at the inception of the Christian life and one that characterized the people of God in their identity as effectually called by God's grace. In other words, in a moment at the inception of the Christian life, we are sanctified, made holy. Our confession also says they, same group of people, are also farther sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue. Their several lusts are more and more weakened and mortified. They're more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces. Did you see that language? Farther sanctified. You're going you're to go more. More and more weakened. Weak, weaker, 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 the lusts. More and more quickened and strengthened in saving graces. Stronger, 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 stronger. It's a process. Further, we go on. This is a lifelong process of mortifying sin and walking in true righteousness. So when it says farther sanctified, it means going even farther than just that immediate or definitive act at the inception of the Christian life. In other words, we are immediately, definitively sanctified, made holy. And then we're farther sanctified, made, made holy in, a, in a, a further sense. As Paul prayed, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, his prayer, his desire for them was that the whole man be sanctified and prepared for the return of Christ. Well, what does that assume? When, I, when, when, when he says that he's praying, he's, he's, he's praying this blessing that God would sanctify them completely, well, that assumes you're not completely sanctified yet. In a sense, you are completely sanctified. In another sense, you're not completely sanctified. Sanctification encompasses both the inner man and the outer man, spirit and soul and body. It addresses the heart and the mind and the actions inside and outside. Again, Winslow, Octavius Winslow, it is a progressive conformity of the whole man to the divine nature. And more specifically, Winslow says that sanctification is, quote, the work of the Holy Spirit whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And you can hear there the language of progress and advancement. In, in, in this, the work that I read by him on the Holy Spirit and this chapter on sanctification, all he dealt with was the process, the progress. He didn't even address the definitive work, the definitive part. But you can hear that, enabled more and more. That's the language of our confession. Die unto sin, live unto righteousness. There's 
there's the language of death and the language of life. We die to sin. We live to righteousness. Positive and negative. We, we live. We put on Christ. We grow. We are strengthened more and more. But we also die. We put off the old man. We mortify the flesh. Our lusts are more and more weakened. Weaker, 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 weaker. There's positive, negative. All of it a part of this process. So sanctification is the setting apart of believers in every part of their being from all that is common for specific service unto God. It begins with union with Christ and regeneration. There's a decisive break from the old life of sin. It's broken. Done. If there's not a decisive break with sin in some sense, you're not saved. When you get saved, something happens. There's a break in an instant. And we enter immediately into the realm of reigning grace. We leave the realm of reigning sin. We come into this sphere of the reign of grace through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And then over time, that work begun permeates the entire man so that we bear the image of Christ more and more and more. We're instantaneously holy in one sense. And we become really and personally more and more holy in another sense. So what is sanctification? A decisive action that occurs at the inception of the Christian life that characterizes the people of God in their identity as effectually called by God's grace. In an instant, we're, made, we're dead to sin, alive to God. But then also, it's the work of the Holy Spirit whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness, a progressive conformity to the whole or of the whole man to the divine nature. It's definitive and it's progressive. It starts and is completed in a sense, and it starts and continues in a sense. But it's the process by which we are separated from that which is common and made holy for God. Second question. This gets to the the meat of our text, how is Christ our sanctification? How is Christ our sanctification? Of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, skip some words, sanctification. The text teaches us that God has given us Christ who is our sanctification. And as I read earlier, there's no great advance in holiness without a growing knowledge of Christ as the sanctification of the believer, we want to know what does this mean that Christ is our sanctification. With righteousness, last week we saw it fairly clearly. The man Christ Jesus lives. He lives a perfect life. He, he, he obtains a righteousness of life. That righteousness is imputed to us. It's credited to our account there's, there's sort of a, a legal transaction where God declares us righteous based on the work of Christ and Christ alone has nothing really to do with what's, what's in us and what we have performed. But then we come to sanctification. We're dealing with our actual lives. This is not outside of us. It, it is in us. It is us, the whole man. There's, with righteousness or justification, there's a legal transaction that takes place. Here, we're talking about 
our person, our, our body and soul. Now, to be sure, we're not saying that something Christ is or has done is imputed to us or credited to our account so that then God counts us as definitively holy or progressively holy, sanctified. He doesn't just say, well, I'm going to count you sanctified even though you're not really. That's not what we're saying. Now you say, well, I hear what, that, that almost muddies the water even more. The reality of sanctification is that we actually enter into a new state of existence. Really. We are made more and more holy. Really. In our lives. Somebody could look at us and they could say, you are more objectively holy according to the standards of, of God's own character now than you were 10 years ago. It's real. We actually do grow in the practice of all true holiness. It's not a mirage. It's not a figment of our imagination. It's not just a legal declaration. Sanctification is real. And Christ is our sanctification. Clear as mud, right? It, Christ is a person. Christ also is not a mirage. Christ is not an idea. Christ is a, a literal, actual, historical, and present living figure. So how does this work? Let me, I've circled in red, attempt to explain. First, it's here in sanctification that we change our language from imputation to impartation. In sanctification, our language changes from imputation to impartation. Synonyms for impartation would be communicated or conferred or given. When, when, when something is imputed, it's just credited to our account even though it's not really ours. The righteousness by which we are justified before God is not ours. It, it, it's, not, it's not ours in the least. It's all Christ. But here, we're talking about impartation. Something is actually given to us, conferred upon us, communicated to us, that is actually literally in real life ours. In justification, righteousness is imputed, the righteousness of Christ. We call it an alien righteousness outside of us. But in sanctification, we could say righteousness is imparted. But it's not the righteousness of Christ necessarily. It is our righteousness through God's working. We're, we're tra transitioning from imputed to imparted, communicated, conferred. We talked... in. Union, we talked about the vine and the branch. Okay, when, when the vine and the branch, you, you graft a branch onto a new tree, whenever that, that connection takes place, the, the life of the tree becomes the life of the branch. It is, it's communicated. It, it has to start from the roots, come up through the trunk. But it's, it, it doesn't, it's not a new kind of life in the branch. It's the same life from the branch or from the tree to the branch. It's the same idea. That's, it's communicated to us. Now let me make some statements, and I won't be able to fully explain these. They, they sort of encapsulate the point. They are short. They, they are um, summaries. If they catch your attention, talk about them at lunch. 
and as we move forward, some of this might become a little more clear. Sanctification is Christ imparted to the believer. Don't measure it by the mile. Weigh it by the pound. Just think about it. Octavius Winslow again. This is, this is fascinating. Sanctification is Christ received, lived upon, and enjoyed. Or to put it another way, if the essence of salvation is union with Christ, then the essence of sanctification is union with Christ producing its fruits in real time in the life of a Christian. Sanctification is the living fruit of a living salvation worked in us by a living Christ. If justification is the effect of an imputed Christ, sanctification is the effect of an imparted Christ. And because it's imparted, the manifestation of it coming out of us, in a sense, we can say it is really and truly our fruit. You must bear fruit. Now, we always want to qualify. We can only do that by the power working in us. But Christ says to his disciples to bear fruit. You bear fruit. You go do it. Your fruit. You bear fruit in keeping with repentance. God doesn't have to repent. You have to repent and bear, bring forth those fruits. It, it's really and truly our fruit because it's Christ imparted, given, communicated to us, and we actually produce the fruit. Now, again, all of that might sound very mysterious. Well, go further, please. Well, I, I can't really. What I want to do is, is give six ways in which Christ himself becomes the sanctification of the believer. And these are just coming from all different angles. And maybe these six things can be read back into or drawn out of those short, pithy statements. And maybe, they'll, maybe those short statements will make more sense. Maybe they won't make more sense. Six ways that Christ is the sanctification of the believer. Number one, sanctification is procured by the blood of Christ. Sanctification, our sanctification, your sanctification, my sanctification, is procured by the blood of Christ. This work of God in us, marking us out and making us holy, is the purchase of Christ obtained by the shedding of His blood in death on the top of a hill called Golgotha. He pours out His blood. He buys this work. Sanctification. Well, let me explain that because that, that can be viewed in a few different ways. What is sanctification? I'm going to do this at every point. I'm going to redefine sanctification in different ways every time. What is sanctification? Well, with regard to that definitive sense, it is the once for all demarcation of the believer, separating them spiritually from all that is associated with man in his fallen state and marking him out as one consecrated unto God Forever, comprehensively summarized in our union with Christ. Joined to the Holy One, we're made holy. 
And it's applied to us in works like effectual calling. We are uh, set free from that which is, or from death, and we're made alive unto God. We're regenerated. We're created uh, new creatures. We talked about regeneration before. We talked about the implantation of a holy principle. And that's as far as you can get any theologian to go. The impartate or the implantation of a, of a holy principle. And I'm, I'm asking, explain that. Edwards, explain that. Owen, explain that. I'm asking all these men, go further. They, won't, they can't go further. What is regeneration? Well, the implantation of a holy principle. Okay. But that happens in an instant and we're made holy. And even in justification, which is not sanctification... But even in justification, we are set apart. In a sense, we are those who are declared righteous when no one else is. These are real, actual, legitimate, undeniable, substantial changes made to a Christian in a moment, definitively. And the picture of this definitive marking off of something for spiritual service was illustrated by the sprinkling of blood in the Old Covenant. In Hebrews 9, we read, In the same way he, Moses, sprinkled with blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Now you think, sprinkling blood on stuff don't make it clean. Because the point is not purified, actually made clean, like you're washing the dishes in a sink of blood. The point is it's set apart and consecrated for service to God. Purified from, from its commonality and sanctified. It was the sprinkling of blood which physically sanctified all the vessels of worship, including the priests themselves. The, the earlobe and the thumb and the big toe. This guy's marked out now. The blood's been sprinkled on him. Now just before that, what did it say in Hebrews 9, 13 and 14? If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that, that physical, typological consecration... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, the inner man, from dead works? Why? To serve the living God. In other words, the substance of which this old covenant image was merely a shadow is the sanctifying of the entirety of the inner man, the soul of the believer, including the conscience, by the application of what? The blood of Christ. When the blood of Christ is applied, not physically, we're, we're not like the priests, we don't get blood put on us. But when the blood of Christ is applied, appropriated in our, in, in our case, that believer is marked out, sanctified. In a moment, the blood has, has availed in your case. He says later, in Hebrews 13, 12, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. So the Christian at the moment of first faith is sprinkled by the blood of Christ. The blood is applied in His case, forever marking Him or her out as holy unto the Lord. And we could have gone even further back, even to the, the, the passing of the, the destroyer in Egypt. When the blood was applied... That house was sanctified. No death can come there. Hebrews 10.10, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So when the, 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 
the outpoured blood, the, out, the, the given life of Christ is applied in our case, in that instant we are set apart, sanctified. In addition to that, we have to keep in mind that sanctification is specifically the work of the Spirit of Christ. Peter calls it the sanctification of the Spirit, 1 Peter 1, 2. And there's a, a, whole, a whole other picture of this, the Spirit, the sprinkling of the water, etc., the anointing that the believer receives, all setting us apart. But it is the Spirit who sanctifies, the Spirit of Christ. And sanctification in both senses, definitive and progressive, is really just the unfolding of the blessings of the new covenant. Which covenant was sealed in Christ's blood? That's what he said. This is my blood of the covenant. The new covenant is sealed in the blood of Christ, and being sealed with that blood, all of its blessings are made over to us through the indwelling Spirit. Where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death. In other words, the new covenant blessings, which we could, would add sanctification in there, the new covenant blessings are made ours through the life-giving and blood-shedding of Christ. All of our sanctification, all of the blessings of the new covenant are applied to us by the Spirit, obtained, purchased, by the blood of Christ. We can also see this definitive marking out of the saints in other ways. By blood. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. The church was obtained by blood. The people of God were definitively made Christ's special personal possession by blood. The church is marked out from the world of men and made Christ's through His blood. Another example to feeling, dealing with this definitive sense, our, our, our once-for-all break with sin. We see in Revelation 1.5 that we have been freed from our sins by His blood. The definitive break. The blood is applied. There is a break. We're not who we used to be. We're not slaves to sin anymore, ever. It's done. There's been a break. We are able to put away sin and live in righteousness by the blood of Christ. We are made capable in a moment. You are made capable to put away sin and live in righteousness in an instant. Now you say, how, how pitiful does it feel that we, we are made capable and yet it takes us 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and we still struggle with indwelling sin? It's not because you're not capable. It's not because there's a lack of power. You were made capable because of the blood of Christ. He's freed us from our sins by His blood. We're set free from the reign of sin and delivered over to the reign of grace by the blood of Christ. John Murray again. He says, We see therefore that the decisive and definitive breach with sin that occurs at the inception of the Christian life is one necessitated by the fact that the death of Christ, His bloodshedding, was decisive and definitive. He says, We cannot allow for any compromise on the doctrine that every believer is a new man. That the old man has been crucified. Has been. 
crucified. That the body of sin has been destroyed. And that as a new man in Christ Jesus, he serves God in the newness, which is none other than that of the Holy Spirit of whom he has become the habitation and his body the temple. So we are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. We are made a temple of God in an instant. Every believer is a dwelling place of God. Why? Because of the blood of Christ, the sprinkling of His blood, the application of what was accomplished by His blood. Christ's blood purchased all of the sanctifying activity of the Spirit for every believer. So it's procured by His blood. I think that's the longest point. Number two, sanctification is actualized from, or we could say out of, the fullness of Christ. Sanctification is actualized, made real in us from the fullness of Christ. From the very perfection, the fullness of perfection and virtue that is found in Christ Himself. Not a copy of His fullness. It's not, not as though Christ went to the store and He grabbed off some fullness of perfection and He went on about His way and we come up behind Him and looked right in the same area where He was and we grabbed a little bit of, this, of, the, of the same kind, made in the same factory, but really a different thing altogether. No. His very own fullness is what actualizes the sanctification in our own, our own lives. Again, what is sanctification? In its progressive and positive sense, we could say simply growth in grace. Sanctification is growth in grace. Growth in every trait of godliness that we could name. That's sanctification, positively speaking. It's growth in love, growth in faith, growth in knowledge, growth in obedience, growth in joy. Growth in peace, growth in long-suffering, growth in meekness and gentleness, growth in self-control. That's sanctification. It's growth in grace. It is to be more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces. That's what our confession says. Where do these graces come from? Where, where does this come from? Christ Himself, who is the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth, John 1.14, and verse 16, from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. He doesn't say, this is my fullness, but you can get, there, there's more of it left over there if you want some. No, all of the fullness is in Him. And we get from Him. We, we obtain fullness from Him. His own Actual fullness is what we receive. We receive Christ and therefore we get all of the fullness of grace that is in Him. And that's how we grow, through union with Him. John Murray, again, nothing in the New Testament defines for us that in which the process consists more characteristically than the impartation of the fullness of Christ. Probably no, no section of any book 
have I read more repeatedly, other than the scriptures, than John Murray's, I think it's three chapters on sanctification in volume two of his works. It's absolutely fascinating. What happens to the Christian as we grow? Christ's own fullness imparted to us. Colossians 1.19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And Colossians 2.10, You have been filled in Him or completed in Him. He got it all and you got Him. Therefore, what did you get? You got it all. You got the fullness through Him. He contains the fullness. We get Him. We get the fullness. How? Because we're united to Him. Christ's fullness is imparted, communicated, conferred to us. All at once? No. Over a lifetime? Yes. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It's a process. The fullness of Christ is imparted to us as we are filled with the Spirit and walk in step with the Spirit. Because the Spirit that endued the man Christ Jesus with all fullness now dwells in every believer. Same Spirit in us. That's in Him. The manifestation of grace or growth in grace and every godly virtue is literally, simply that which found its full measure in the man Christ Jesus being applied in the heart and life of the believer in real time. This is receiving and living upon Christ. We get Him and we just live off of Him. Sanctification is Christ imparted to the believer in every grace which marked out His own beauty, His own holiness, His own fullness. His fullness is actualized in our lives. That's sanctification. Number three, sanctification is materialized by the strength of Christ. Materialized by the strength of Christ. To materialize means to appear in bodily form. You could probably see I'm grasping at, at the thesaurus at this point, but follow me here. What I'm saying is that this thing called sanctification appears in each particular believer to materialize in, in, in their bodily form in them through the strength of Christ Himself. It will not show itself in you. You will not be sanctified. I will not be sanctified simply because you or I mustered up the power to manifest some growth in grace. That's not how it works. It will show itself in you only because there is a strength at work in you which is not yours. It's the strength of Jesus Christ, His strength. Again, what is sanctification? In its progressive form, it's growth in grace. Positively, that means putting on or walking in the graces and virtues, which we just named in the previous point. Negatively, it means putting off the deeds of the body, mortifying the sins of the flesh. Sanctification is a process of warfare, putting on and putting off. Putting on the armor, hacking to death the enemy. It's, it's war. And how is Christ our sanctification? He Himself is the strength by which we do that. He's the strength. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. Whatever we might accomplish on our own or in our own strength is a forgery. It's not real. Don't trust it. You say, well, I, I, I did a good job putting to death that, that sin. I didn't even have to talk to God about it. No, you didn't. That thing's coming back. You didn't deal with it. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And then he goes on to describe 
the Christian life in terms of warfare. How can we do it? Only by His might. Only by His strength. As for the negative aspects of mortifying sin, he says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What spirit is that? Look back at verse 9. It's the Spirit of Christ. His own Spirit. He is the strength behind our ability to wield the sword and hack away at remaining sin. Christ is. Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace, we just saw that, that is in Christ Jesus. The grace which constitutes our sanctification is also the strength of it. And this grace is in Christ. It's the strength of Christ Himself. And then Paul goes on to list many other imperatives for Timothy. Verse 2, entrust the truth to faithful men. Verse 3, share in suffering. Verse 14, charge people not to quarrel. Verse 15, present yourself to God as an unashamed workman. Verse 16, avoid irreverent babble. Verse 19, depart from iniquity. And then in verse 21, he says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use set apart as holy. Guess what that word is? Sanctified. Sanctified, useful to the master of the house. Ready for every good work. You see, Paul tells Timothy... Look to Christ for strength. Go about your business in Christ's strength. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ. And then in that strength, go about all of these specific duties that I'm entrusting to you as an apostolic delegate there in Ephesus. The Christian life for Timothy could not be done apart from the strength of Christ. And the same is true for all of us. We cannot go about whatever stewardship God has given to us. We cannot do it in our own strength. It's Christ's strength. Sanctification takes place only by His strength working in us. Number four, sanctification is personalized by beholding the glory of Christ. Sanctification is personalized by beholding the glory of Christ. When something is personalized, it is produced to meet someone's individual requirements. You've seen a personalized license plate. You've seen personalized coffee mugs. You say, I want this thing personalized. I want it made or designed. I want it produced with a specific individual in mind, which means it's going to have something distinct about it that suits this person and only this person. So when I say sanctification is personalized by beholding the glory of Christ, I mean that sanctification becomes the work of God in you. In you. For you, with you in mind, your soul, your mind, personally, in direct relation to your personal gaze at the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ. What is sanctification? In its progressive sense, it's the gradual transformation of the whole man so that the believer is conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Sanctification is movement from one stage of godliness to the next. It's growth, one piece at a time, more and more, until the whole puzzle displays the glory of God. One piece at a time. How does that happen? 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image 
from one degree of glory to another. And where do we find that glory? Chapter 4, verse 6. The glory of God shines in the face of Jesus Christ. We behold Him. We gaze at Him. The work of becoming more and more like Christ takes place in direct proportion to your personal engagement in this duty of beholding the glory of the Lord shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Inasmuch as you seek out the glowing effulgence of all the perfections of God as they are specifically manifested in the man Christ Jesus, to that extent, you will be truly, personally sanctified. Because God has created something in us so that we become what we behold. What we're looking at, what we're fixing our eyes upon, that's what we'll be. Now be honest with yourself. What do you look like? Do you look like Christ or not? And I don't just mean in external morality, but in your heart and in your soul, in the actings of the inner man. Do you look like Christ or not? In your thoughts, do you think like Christ or not? In your, in your affections, do you affect like Christ? We could even use the word emote in, in a sense. Do, do you do that like Christ or not? If not, it's probably because you're not looking at Christ enough. Are you struggling with the same sins repeatedly? Are there godly habits that you just can't seem to adopt? Is there a measure of love that you just can't reach? Do you struggle to forgive other people? It's probably because you're not looking at Christ enough. Some facet of His glory is escaping your view. And that's where your struggle is. The process of sanctification happens as we behold Christ. Number five, sanctification is obtained by the present intercession of Christ. We might think that because the progress of sanctification flows out of or from that once for all definitive act, that once the Christian life starts, it's sort of just like a snowball. God rolls us off the hill and we go rolling down the hill, boom, ba-boom, 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 getting bigger and bigger and bigger, more and more grace, 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 grace. We're growing, growing, growing. And God just sits back and grins and enjoys seeing us tumble down the hill or, or that we might picture it as though God winds us up like the Energizer Bunny at the, at the beginning of the Christian life and turns us loose and we just keep going. And God sits back and watches it happen. Or we might think that since Christ purchased all the necessary means and benefits of our salvation in the shedding of His blood, that since He's now entered into heaven, He just sits down and puts His feet back and just watches this world of wind-up toys marching around. Saying, yeah, I, I bought that with my blood. That's not true. Because sanctification is a living salvation applied by a living Savior. The fact of the matter is that our sanctification in every sense is directly attributed to the work of Christ. Definitively, yes, the virtue of His death and resurrection is applied. But progressively, that same virtue is applied throughout the Christian life. Every minute, every hour, every day, every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year. It's being applied. It's being applied. It's being applied. Now what is Christ doing to ensure that that happens? The answer is... He intercedes for us. Again, what is sanctification? 
In the progressive sense, it is the ongoing advancement in gracious virtues worked in us by the Spirit of Christ so that we are made more and more like Christ. Well, does it just, did He just open up a valve and it begins to flow automatically? Is He just sitting back and watching the, the, the hose dump on, onto us? No. His Spirit does the work in us. And it is Christ who stands before the Father making intercession, praying. That's what that word means. He's praying. And securing by His prayers every single movement in the flow of grace to us and the work of grace in us. Every piece, every part, every growth of every grace in you, seen or unseen, perceived or imperceptible, every single bit is an answer to prayer. And the one praying is our great high priest. We have the example of this in his high priestly prayer in John 17. One of his themes was sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. For their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. He prayed for our sanctification then to let us know he's praying for our sanctification now. In the specific example of Peter, an individual person, what do he say? I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The strength and rigidity, or we might say the buoyancy, the spring backiness of Peter's faith was directly related to the prayers of Jesus. I pray. That's why you're not going to go to hell, Peter, because I pray. And the same is true for us. John Bunyan said, Were it not for supplies, by virtue of the intercession of Christ, faith would fail of performing its office in any measure. And faith he calls the root grace. It's by faith that all of these other come. That faith would fail if Christ stops praying. If Christ does not pray, we do not grow in holiness. But because Christ does pray, we grow in holiness. He's praying for us. In Hebrews, we read, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Salvation to the uttermost is salvation to its complete and consummate end in every part. He's able to get the whole thing done. How can that be possible? Well, he lives to make intercession. He prays to make sure that it takes place. He's able to do that. Every single inching forth in our sanctification, whether we notice it or not, every movement from glory to glory, every act of the Holy Spirit to mortify sin or to put on Christ is obtained for us first by the shedding of His blood, but then secondly, by the present intercession of Christ. It's because He's praying. And many times we fail. And many times we are given over. And we're sifted like wheat. The only reason that we are able to roll over from our backs onto our faces and cry out for help is because Christ prayed that our faith would not fail. He prays. This very moment, as we are listening, as we are considering His Word, as we are considering His truth, this very moment, Christ is praying for His people, all of His people, all over the world, that they, that they would be sanctified, that there would be growth in grace taking place because of His prayers. As He prays, grace is imparted. So it's obtained by His present intercession. And then lastly, sanctification is consummated in our likeness to Christ. 
It's consummated in our likeness to Christ. We've talked about sanctification in the definitive or immediate sense. where you are distinctly, instantaneously marked out by God, for God, forever, by our union with Christ in a moment. We've talked about sanctification in its more uh, popular, progressive sense, the process. Over time, we're made more and more holy, more and more like Christ. But there's another sense in which you might see this term used, and that's its final or consummate sense. Final sanctification, complete sanctification. We will someday be completely, totally, immutably made holy when we're glorified. Not when you die, because your body's going to go in the dirt. When the body comes out, that's glory. The whole man, remember, it's the whole man. Now, how does the Bible describe that state of of final sanctification or or glorification? Well, very simply, it's Christ-likeness. Speaking like Christ. Christ was the one who procured our salvation by His shed blood. It's actualized by, through, and from the fullness of Christ imparted to us. It's materialized in us by Christ's strength. It's personalized as we behold Christ's glory. It's obtained moment by moment by Christ's intercession. So when it's completed, what do you think we're going to look like? We're going to look like Christ. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Romans 8, 29. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. The Lord Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. 1 John 3, 2. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. When Paul describes the goal of our growth in Ephesians 4, he says we are to grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's our aim, growing up into Him. Growing up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. The end of sanctification is to be finally, totally, immutably made to be like Christ. We will be as much like Christ as a creature can possibly be like Christ and still retain our own individual and distinct existence and being. We will not, or we do not in glory, we do not become Christ. We are not absorbed into Christ where we we lose our our own personal existence. We, We don't lose our being in Him. Each one of us will be raised up to see Him and seeing Him we will be finally and completely transformed to bear His glorious image. Just as in this life we behold Him by faith, and beholding, we are changed, so also on that day when we behold Him by sight, the transformation will be completed. And what's the principle? We become what we behold. We see Him, we're made like Him. The spirits made perfect will join bodies raised incorruptible and we will be like Christ. Our sanctification finds its terminus in bearing the image of Jesus Christ fully, perfectly, immutably, and eternally. The image of Christ. So then, how is Christ our sanctification? How is He our holiness? He procures all the necessary means by His blood. He imparts to us His own fullness by His Spirit. We make progress in His strength. 
We're transformed by beholding His glory. It's obtained in real time by His present intercession. And the end goal is that we're going to look like Him. Sanctification is Christ. And all that we could put under that title imparted to the believer in some way. It is Christ lived, received, lived upon, and loved. Nothing more, nothing less. God has given us a person who is our sanctification. You want to grow in grace? Well, you need Christ. That's what you need. Now, what's the application? Very briefly, verse 31. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Have you seen any growth? Has there been any advancement whatsoever? It's not because you read a good book. It's because Christ gave the growth. Christ gave the increase. He's making you like Himself. Boast in the Lord. Let's pray.